There's an ancient Chinese parable about an old man who knew he would die soon. He visited a wise man in his village and asked, can you tell me what heaven and hell are like? The wise man led him down a strange path deep into the countryside. Finally, they came upon a large house with many rooms and went inside. Inside, they found lots of people and an enormous table with an incredible array of food. Then the old man noticed a strange thing. The people, all thin and hungry, were holding chopsticks 12 feet long. They tried to feed themselves, but of course, they could not get the food into their mouths. The old man then said to the wise man, Now I know what hell looks like. Please show me heaven. The wise man then led him down the same path a little farther until they came upon another house similar to the first. They went inside and saw many people well-fed and happy. And then the old man noticed that they too had chopsticks 12 feet long. This puzzled him, and he asked, I see all these people have chopsticks 12 feet long, yet they are well-fed and happy. Please explain. And the wise man replied, In heaven, we feed each other. In my work as a hospice chaplain, it probably won't surprise you to hear that I occasionally explore the idea of heaven and hell with people, actually more often heaven. And these conversations have led me to personally reflect on this idea of heaven, and I've landed firmly on the conviction that we are here to create heaven on earth, or at least try. And that leads me to love and compassion and all the ways I am in relationship with people and the planet. I have to say, I haven't had very many patients wanting to contemplate the fiery depths of hell. In fact, most people want to talk about the ways that their life has had meaning. And more often than not, it has to do with relationships and with love. Family, friends, love found, and love lost. As Unitarian Universalists, some of our ultimate values are relationship, our interconnectedness, and the power of love. We say, love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. We say, we like to say we are love's people. We use that word love a lot. It seems like our social justice work and service is the main focus of expressing that love. Love is more verb than noun. We come together in search of loving community. But I've been thinking, how do we become more loving? How do we increase its impact on our daily lives? How do we feed each other and bring the spirit of heaven into our lives? How do we cultivate a heart of compassion? Last February, I heard a report on National Public Radio on All Things Considered. 
And the report said that Americans spend $14 billion on Valentine's Day. Now, I was astounded. I mean, you know, maybe $1 billion, but $14 billion. So I went to the website and I re-listened to the podcast and I had heard right that Americans spend $14 billion on Valentine's Day. Now, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it is the American way to say how much I love you by spending money and purchasing products. But it could signal a deeper striving for time set aside for love, for connection, a way out of the isolation often found in our work or in the daily routines of our lives. I've always been a little cynical about Valentine's Day, and these four mentioned economics didn't help that cynicism. But I find I'm softening a bit. A holiday to celebrate love. Perhaps we need more of them. After all, don't we say love is at the center of what we do? If my work with the dying has taught me anything, it has taught me to want to pay more attention to love, nuance it, expand love's reality in my life. I am challenged to cultivate compassion and grow more loving. And so kind of doing this thinking about love, I found it's actually kind of hard to find a definitive meaning or a definition of love. It's an abstract idea rooted in feeling, feeling directed towards another, though some would argue that love is more action than feeling. There's a complexity to love. It turns out love is interpreted in different ways. There are scientific explanations about the center of emotion in the brain and that, you know, brain chemistry and that our hormones relate to being mammals, which have led us to love. Or the psychological theories about emotional affection, attachment and pleasure, learned behavior. And then religions focus on love as devotion or in the feeling of oneness or the belief that love comes from God and God provides unconditional, universal love. But they all agree love is central to a meaningful life. Even many non-Christians recognize the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And we heard this paraphrased in our opening hymn. If I speak in tongues of mortals and angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to move mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And in words attributed to the Buddha, let the disciple cultivate love without measure towards all beings. Let him cultivate toward the whole world, above, below, around, a heart of love unstinted. For in all the world, this state of heart is best.
And then fast forward to the 20th century and psychologist Eric Fromm in his sentinel book, seminal book in his book, Art of Loving, which maybe some of you read long ago, he tells us the first thing we have to learn about love is that it's an art. Just as living is an art, if we want to learn how to love, we must proceed in the same way as if we would proceed to learn any other art. So as I said, listening and compassion is at the center of the hospice work that I do. In order to do this day after day, I've honestly had to ask myself how much energy and time I've actually devoted to learning this art of love and compassion. So upon assessment, I realized actually not so much. So something I highly valued seemed relegated to the bottom of the to-do list. Even theological school is mainly an academic environment devoted to the realm of ideas and actions, the behaviors of ministry. Wouldn't it be interesting if the explicit practice in the art of loving and compassion was part of a seminary curriculum? What kind of ministers would that spawn? So I took it upon myself to develop my capacity for compassion, develop some heart muscle, develop a truly heartfelt presence in the world. Fromm tells us everything else is considered more important than love, success, prestige, money, power. Almost all of our energy is devoted to these aims and almost none to the art of loving. When my husband Jeff and I bought our house, now almost 25 years ago, I was determined to try my hand at gardening. I'd never gardened much and was thrilled to have my own backyard to experiment with. I got books from the library, I plotted and I planned. I learned as much as I could about the art of gardening from my friends, from master gardeners, and then Jeff and I double dug some new garden plots in our backyard along our back fence, back-breaking work that we hoped would result in beautiful flowers and herbs for years to come. That first year, I diligently weeded and watered. The second year, I diligently weeded and watered. And then I had trouble keeping up with those weeds. And then some fungus started to develop on the monarda, and then some of the leaves on a plant that I can't even tell you the name of anymore started to kind of roll up with aphids. The honeymoon was over. I didn't realistically have the time to devote to such a big garden, not to research, not to weed, not even so much to savor its beauty. I love the idea of it, but I have been a kind of a failed gardener. I'm good at other things, but I fail at gardening. <laughs> so, but I see how the hard and ceaseless work of cultivating a garden mirrors the attention and time needed in love. We must cultivate the potential beauty and deep roots found in our hearts. The sun must shine on our heart in order for it to grow. One must never be satisfied with one's ability to love.
Buddhism offers a spiritual practice in the art of loving. In Buddhism, there is a 2,000-year-old meditation called loving-kindness that systematically develops a quality of loving acceptance that grows one's capacity to love. The Buddha advocated a middle way, a spiritual path, that is aimed at uncovering the illusion of separation and allows its practitioners to find a way to deep happiness and connection. This freedom is described by the Buddha as the liberation of the heart, which is love. Meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg describes the practice this way. In doing loving kindness meditation, we gently repeat phrases that are meaningful in terms of that which we wish for our, first for ourselves and then for others. We first begin by befriending ourselves. Classically, there are four phrases used, though in modern practice, particularly in the West, there is flexibility in creating more personal language. Here are the traditional phrases. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Over time, these phrases are extended to include a dearly beloved, then a neutral person, and then a hostile person or enemy and finally, to all beings. The idea of happiness, along with the universality of suffering, is central in Buddhism. In the West, we tend to think of happiness as kind of trite, and we would prefer to be joyful and to have an intense, wonderful feeling. Yet, one of the insights of the Buddha was the cultivation of equanimity this idea of evenness of temperament. So a gentle happiness is the desired state. People who do loving kindness meditation find an increased acceptance for the way things are and to begin to experience a wholeness and a heart filled with love, with happiness. I began to do this practice regularly about a year ago and it has slowly changed me. Loving-kindness meditation is not just viewed as a sitting meditation, but one that is brought out into everyday life, and this is how I use it. I began to say these phrases while driving in the car on the way to patients' houses, at my lunch break, or one of my favorites, while sitting at a traffic light. You use it, you do it, whenever you have a couple of minutes. I send this loving kindness to myself, to my family, colleagues, patients, to difficult people in my life, to all sentient beings. I feel more connected to everybody, even the driver who cut me off on the highway. Gradually, I have found a deeper heart of acceptance. It is not choosing something to love, but choosing to become more loving. It is cultivating a heart of compassion so needed in this world today.
It is focusing on the inner place of intention that then expands the possibility of our actions. It's focusing on your inner place of intention. There's a hymn in our teal hymnal that is adapted from the loving kindness meditation. Sometimes I sing it in the car. And so now I invite you all to sit back, close your eyes if you wish, place a hand on your heart if you wish, and receive this song. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be May we be filled with loving kindness. May we be well. May we be filled with loving kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be When you're ready, you can open your eyes. Someone once said, love is your capacity for taking tension. The Dalai Lama says, our greatest teacher in compassion is our enemy. The difficult person, experiences of sickness or suffering, the times when things don't work out the way we had planned. He says, I must emphasize again that merely thinking that compassion and reason and patience are good will not be enough to develop them. And who creates them? Not our friends, of course, but our enemies. They are the ones who give us the most trouble. So if we wish to learn, we should consider our enemies to be our best teachers. For a person who cherishes compassion and love, the practice of tolerance is essential. And for that, the enemy is indispensable. So we should feel grateful to our enemies, for it is they who can best help us develop a tranquil mind. 
Dalai Lama also states, I treat whoever, whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. <laughs>